1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
2: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine, so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
0: Ah, science fiction. Aliens? Absolutely. Robots? Of course. But why are there so many priests in space? As Jim Clark writes in Science Fiction and Catholicism, The Rise and Fall of the Robot Papacy, Science fiction has had an obsession with Roman Catholicism for over a century. The religion is the genre's dark twin as well as its dirty secret. In this first-ever study of the relationship between Catholicism and science fiction, Jim Clark explores the genre's codependence and antagonism with the largest sect of Christianity. Tracking its origins all the way back to the pamphlet wars of the Enlightenment and speculative fiction's Gothic origins, Clark unveils a story of robot popes, Jesuit missions to the stars, first contact between aliens and the Inquisition, and rewritings of the Reformation. Featuring close readings of over 50 SF texts, he examines how the genre's greatest invention might just be the imaginary Catholicism it repeatedly and obsessively depicts, a faux Catholicism, at odds with the religion's own intriguing interest in both science and the possibility of alien life. Jim Clark is Senior Lecturer and Course Director of English and Journalism at Coventry University, where he lectures on science fiction and fantasy literature. He's the author of The Aesthetics of Anthony Burgess, and has written extensively on J.G. Ballard, Doctor Who, and Ian M. Banks. He's principal investigator on the Ponying the Slovos Project, which investigates invented languages in translation. He's here with me today to talk about Catholics in space. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Jim Clark to talk about his book, Science Fiction and Catholicism, The Rise and Fall of the Robot Papacy. Jim, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field.
2: Well, I, for a long time, I was a, actually a journalist before I became an academic. And um, I went kind of back in, in, in late life to do my PhD at Trinity College in Dublin and it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, university, an amazing library with millions upon millions of volumes and so while I was doing my PhD thesis, I was obviously kind of using this library to read all the science fiction that I'd, I'd never had time to do before and I just kept kind of noticing all these novels that had priests in space in them and uh, you know after the 4th or 5th or 6th or 10th or 20th novel with a, a priest in space in it, I just thought there's something in this, I should look into it a bit more and Five years later, it was a book.
0: So first, a disclaimer for our audience. We're going to be referring to the genre of, of SF as opposed to using the term science fiction. So for those who don't know, SF can stand for science fiction, but it means more than that. So do you want to elaborate on how you use the term SF in your book?
2: So on one level, it's kind of like an industry standard, if you like. Um, it's it's the term that uh, literary critics have gathered around in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, also, it was my publisher's decision to use F- SF as well. But it, it has a lot of meanings, as you say. It isn't always about science, for example. You know, some SF predates the, the development of modern science. So we had all sorts of competing terms at different times. Um, Hugo Gernsback, um, who kind of partly codified the genre in the pulps in the 1920s, he used to call it scientific fiction, which I've always kind of liked. Um, other people call it speculative fantasy, science fantasy, speculative fiction, and all these terms kind of overlap. So if you just use the initials SF, it kind of sneakily covers them all.
0: So you open with a really titillating line for an academic monograph, I think. And it goes, There is a recurring nightmare from which 20th century literary SF cannot awake. This is not the imminent apocalypse, nor the ravening alien, but the Catholic priest. So you argue that SF has always had a complex relationship with religion and with Catholicism in particular, which is often portrayed as retrograde and a dystopian obstacle to scientific progress, and functions as a foil to all the genre's usual symbols of utopia. But before we get into the details, can you give us a bit of an overview of how the genre presents this opposition and where the trend may have come from?
2: Sure. Uh, It comes from the very origins of the genre, um, which is as uh, an outcrop of the Enlightenment. Uh, It's really a kind of Enlightenment project. Um, If we think of the Enlightenment period of that kind of late 17th, early 18th century um, in places like England, France, Germany, but especially England, and I'm accepting, of course, there was a huge role that, that France in particular has to play in early science fiction. Um, but even there, it originated as a kind of enlightenment project, which is overtly anti-clerical. Um, but in England in particular, Catholicism was kind of like a... Um, A shorthand for religion and revelation and especially regressive and retrograde kind of approaches to religion and revelation. Um, And that kind of dovetailed nicely with the the kind of perennial anti-Catholicism of English letters in the kind of 16th and 19th centuries. So if we're thinking of things like the Gothic literature, it's hugely anti-Catholic, you know, murdering monks and evil priests and nasty nuns and things like this. And Catholicism sort of becomes emblematic of this kind of regressive uh, revelatory knowledge form, as opposed to, you know, the the development of science, which was, you know, in the Enlightenment sense, kind of progressive and and future focused. Um, So you have this kind of summary um, that... Adam Roberts uses in his estimable uh, history of science fiction, where he kind of summarizes it as saying, you know, fantasy literature is Catholic because it kind of looks backwards and imagines things that can't be real. Science fiction is kind of Protestant because it looks forward and it imagines things that could potentially be real. And I suppose that's kind of the origins of all of this. And that's kind of the formula I was writing against.
0: Right. And you talk about how critics addressing these themes have tended to fall into two camps, either atheistic SF advocates um, and theologians as well who happen to be interested in the genre. Um, so tell us about the previous work in this field.
2: Well, I don't want to criticize other people too much because I know how much work it takes to write a book, you know, but I've tended to find that books that look at science fiction and religion together kind of, they're either rather generalized or they're a little bit didactic. So, for example, you've got a lot of theologians, you know, who completely love science fiction. And they like to use it to proselytize for their faith, which is absolutely perfectly fine. Um, You know, they might use like lessons from Star Trek to promote ideas of universal love and respect, you know, for example. Um, But that's kind of what I mean by didactic. They're telling you what you should be thinking about this. And they're using the the literature to a a kind of a means to an end. And, And as I say, that's perfectly fine. That's theology. That's that's proselytization. It's not really literary scholarship, though. Um, and when we look at the literary scholarship on on this kind of area um, they 're either impossibly general. you know they use you know trying to deal with all religions and all of science fiction one little book you know um, or else they 're pretty firmly kind of marxist in their perspective, which means that they they tend to take a a, a quite limiting approach to what science fiction can be or what it actually is, um, and they tend to downplay this huge transcendental element of the genre in order to to sort of shoehorn it into narrow parameters of alienation or social progressivism. And obviously, from my point of view, that's not all science fiction, or not even all utopian fiction. So um, I think if we're if we're using a, a definition of, of science fiction that excludes things like Frank Herbert's June, then we're not really dealing with all the science fiction. So I wanted to just take one little corner um, and look at science fiction and Catholicism. And it turned out to be a huge corner. And I'm, I'm hoping that other people will come along and do like science fiction and Hinduism and science fiction and Judaism and science fiction and Islam. And, uh, and we can start actually really drilling down into this huge area. Area, you
0: know okay so in chapter one you begin with a cultural context leading up to the 20th century that laid the groundwork for both the development of the sf genre in general as well as its interaction with catholicism more specifically so let's start with the genre itself what were the major cultural shifts that created a readership for this kind of entertainment writing
2: well, I think primarily mass literacy, you know, you, in, in the 19th century in somewhere like Britain, you go from about 15, 20 percent literacy to up into the 80 percentages by the end of the century. So you've got mass education and mass literacy. Suddenly there's a huge audience of people uh, who want to read. Uh, and, they, you know, this is where we get the development of Sunday newspapers. This is where we get the development of Penny Dreadfuls. Um, of 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 you know Christian religious tracts all sorts of forms of literature emerge to feed this huge new mass literary, literary audience and um, Another development I would say is the development of professional science and engineering, um, so we always had scientists we had you know the the kind of mad scientist, the you know aristocrat working in his private lab and so on. but the development of science as a profession and engineering as a profession uh, where these were jobs that you could get and uh, and, and the interest in that and the, the kind of cutting edge a bit like You know, science in the 1870s was a bit like, uh, or engineering in the 1870s was a bit like where IT was in the 1990s, you know, it was the big, you know, new frontier of, of, of potential riches and interest and societal change. So people were getting interested in that, people wanted to read about it, how to get interested in in the uh, world that it was going to create, how to take part in it. And then there's other things as well, like um, the secularization of society, you know, people were looking at Jesus Christ as man rather than God for the first time. They were historiographizing um, the history of the Christian church and the history of, of, of other revelatory forms of knowledge. And then finally, what I would say is, is crucial is, is what they call the technological sublime. So this is the idea of, of having streetlights and uh, in you know, uh, huge uh, hydroelectric dams, these kind of man-made, uh, instances of, of sublimity where you, you just sit back and go, wow, like we did that. We used to do this. And Edmund Burke goes back and says, we did this with like the Alps. We would look at the mountains and go, wow, look at the size of that mountain. It's kind of beautiful, but terrifying. Now we were able to do this with like cityscapes, you know? So I think that modernity, that process of modernity and the technological supply and the fact that it was technologically driven and driven by science all led to people wanting to speculate about where it was going and wanting to read about it and imagine it. And that all emerges in kind of like a big foment of utopian fiction in the late 19th century. And science fiction comes out of that.
0: Wow, exciting times. Um, Yeah, definitely. Uh, So you also write about anti-Catholic sentiment in the English-speaking world, uh, dating back to the Tudors, and how it's expressed in Anglophone literature. So what was the reason for that sentiment, and what kind of evidence do you find for it in the literature?
2: It's pretty consistent over a matter of of centuries, to be honest. You you need to understand the politics of it um, from Henry VIII onward. Catholicism was a kind of fifth column in England, or, or at least it was perceived often as being such. Um, I sometimes think, looking back at, at some of the literature, the rhetoric is not entirely unlike how some people sometimes talk and write about immigrant communities today in our in our culture. Um, there was this idea that people had divided loyalties. They were divided between being, for example, English and then being loyal to Rome, to the Pope. And so you get these kind of like, pamphlet wars and tract wars and and the Anglican Ascendancy uh, are are condemning equally both the Catholics and these kind of Protestant dissenters um, for not being orthodox kind of Anglican citizens. Um, and at least the dissenters had Scotland or they could go to America and found a whole new world, you know, um, the English, Reckes and Catholics had to remain. And and so they remained a, a kind of perpetual suspicion, constantly under surveillance, lacking in human rights. I mean, not without reason under surveillance, you know, we're coming up on November the 5th here in England and, uh. They celebrate Guy Fawkes. He did try to blow up Parliament. So there were kind of little insurrections and stuff. So there, there was this perpetual suspicion, um, a lack of human rights, a source of concern for the authorities. And this manifests throughout the literature for, like, like I say, from the 1600s to the, to the 1900s.
0: So in Chapter 2, you claim that the question um, of how to define the boundaries of humanity is an important point of common interest shared by Catholic theology and SF literature. Uh, so this isn't unexpected for SF, as it's fairly, uh, it's a fairly central preoccupation with all the robots and cyborgs and aliens that are constantly leading us to question how exactly we're different or the same from them. But how does Catholic theology come to bear upon this question?
2: Well, this is the thing that I, I, I found really fascinating doing this book, was Catholicism is enormously interested in this area, which is something I hadn't expected, um, the current Pope uh, Francis has expressed a desire to baptize baptize alien species. For example, um, he he's waiting for the Martians to land so that he can uh, bring them into the bosom of the Church. Um, the the Vatican astronomer, uh, a guy American guy called uh, Brother Guy, literally Guy Brother Guy Consumano, um, is a huge force uh, driving interest in research in this area. He organizes conferences uh, with scientists looking at this area. The theology itself is very interesting because Christianity is the only main religion with a major problem in relation to aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, they're all fine with aliens. If you dig into the theology, they're like, yeah, hey, yeah, there could be aliens, that's up to God or up to, you know, reincarnation, whatever, that's fine, we don't mind. But Christianity alone requires Christ to have died for you, it requires Christ's salvation. So. The question then is, did he go and die on every planet that is life? It's a very big universe. That'd be like a pretty much full-time job. And Enlightenment scholars like Thomas Paine have been satirizing this very point for centuries, and and even Ray Bradbury was still doing so in the 1970s. So for Catholicism in particular, but also the other Christian religions as well, the the Protestant churches, the Orthodox churches, um, they're not really concerned so much about robot life or artificial intelligence. That's kind of like tools that we can make we're we're given the world we can make our own tools Um, but they're really interested in in aliens um, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence so um, it's interesting because science fiction kind of depicts both artificial life and alien life as potentially other to human and interesting contrast to who we are but catholicism and and christianity by extension is really only interested in in extraterrestrial intelligence not really interested in ai at all
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Yeah, so that leads me to my second question. Um, in SF that deals with posthumanist themes, um, post-humanist being, uh, well, you can probably explain it better than I, but, um, you know, transforming into something yeah. else type of thing. Uh, do we find any examples of texts that invoke Catholic theology as a way to respond to these questions?
2: I would say probably the biggest example in recent times would be um, The Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons. Um, It's a four book series. It's massively um, intertextual, wonderfully literate. Um, And the the final two books of the series, you you know, spoiler alert, the galaxy descends into this kind of uh, galactic Catholic theocracy with a sort of evil eternal pope who's constantly being brought back from the dead in some kind of weird satire of the resurrection in order to perpetually oppress the, the, the galaxy. Um, and in that context, um, the liberating force in those novels are, are these figures called the ousters, who are overtly an overtly posthuman civilization who are led by a kind of young female Buddhist messiah figure. So it's it's, it's a very interesting contrast. Um, the idea there is that, that the, the the Catholics have kind of allied with these evil artificial intelligences to create a perpetual oppressive Catholicism throughout the whole galaxy. Um, so I guess that's kind of a, a, a quite a negative Catholic theology being applied to post-humanism. Um, the. The the interesting thing will be because obviously we know that the Catholic Church and and other entities you know attempt to to police the boundaries of life and and issues like abortion and so on that are very contentious arise in those circumstances. Um, the 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 issue of what will happen to Catholicism's um, uh, disconcern or lack of concern over artificial intelligence should the singularity come should we have actual artificial intelligences that it, it, it might come as a surprise to a lot of the christian churches that they they will be forced into a position at some point to define are these creatures alive in what way are they alive what rights do they have um that's all down the line they've not thought to address this yet and the literature doesn't really address it either
0: interesting yeah so it sounds like the examples that you've found have have been um, unflattering to Catholicism. So it's not like it's not like Catholicism viewed in the positive, their theology viewed in the positive sense would have something um, positive to contribute,
2: it sounds like, to our understanding of AI. On the AI, not so much. They, they don't really have anything to say. I mean, Catholicism itself isn't so worried. Um, literature is terrified, by the way all the way back to kind of the golems of medieval Jew- Judaism, or the brazen head, or Paracelsus's homunculus, uh, or Frankenstein's monster, or there's so many examples. Um, Brian Aldiss calls it the, the Frankenstein complex, but I prefer to call it the, the Terminator complex, you know, that our, our creations will rise and kill us all. Um, and what's interesting is Isaac Asimov tried to reverse this with his, his robot series, his benign positronic robots, but it didn't really work and we kind of reverted back to the fear perspective and this might be because i think because it was clear from asimov's vision his bicentennial man was kind of servile and abject and desperate he's kind of like pinocchio please can i be a real boy um and um, perhaps the parallels with race relations are more obvious to us now in those narratives than they were in the mid-20th century to asimov people begging for equal human rights
0: Yes, and I've heard the the theory too that the reason why the oppressor is so hesitant to relinquish control is because there's this the assumption that if he loses control he will be treated the way he has treated others. And I wonder if that kind of fear is maybe coming through in our imagination of the terminator coming to get us. I just watched uh, the new Terminator this week. It was very good. <laughs>
2: i mean to see it. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm a huge fan of the Terminator.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, I loved it. I had so much fun, but I digress. Um, so let's move to uh, Chapter 3, which is about missionaries to alien dystopias, because this is another um, theme that you found. And so with the notion of sentient life on other planets follows this idea of evangelizing to those people, as you've already kind of alluded to. And so uh, so this chapter introduces us to the term exotheology, which is wonderful. Um, and that's essentially the project of sending missionaries to convert the aliens. So despite our efforts to listen in on the stars, we haven't actually found any alien life so far. And yet, a great deal of thought has been put into the question of spreading earthly religion.
2: So what's happening here? Well, all religions are in the business—not not quite all, not quite all. Judaism not so much, but most religions are in the business of of, of proselytizing and, and spreading their their, their belief system. Um, I suppose what's happening here on the one hand is Fermi's paradox—the idea that if the universe is so big, where are all the other inhabitants? Why have we not met them? And um, there are a lot of explanations offered for the paradox. One that I quite like is that basically we live in the exurbs. We're so far out of the city center that nobody's found us yet. We're out out in the middle of of nowhere. Um, Another is that civilizations might destroy themselves before they develop the capacity to travel around the galaxy. Um, And another one is that they might destroy those who they meet in a kind of, you know, imperial death march. And this latter version is called the, the dark forest theory, and it's been wonderfully popularized by the Chinese science fiction author Xi Liu recently in his novel, The Three-Body Problem. Um, but exotheology kind of goes further than just the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, I think. It, it's about negotiating our position within a very vast and mostly unexplained universe. So the, the two things kind of go hand in hand, and, and the Vatican research has helped to discover uh, so-called extreme life forms here on Earth. You know, life forms that exist in volcanoes or that are based on arsenic and things like this. So, it's helping to drive our own scientific knowledge of the universe. Um, exotheology is, I suppose, about what might happen to our religions in the event of life elsewhere. Maybe we, I mean, we've got some great science fiction novels where um, we end up being converted to alien religions. Things like Stranger in a Strange Land by Roger, uh, Robert Heinlein, for example. Um, I, I'm kind of with Arthur C. Clarke on this. He's got the, a very solid prediction, and he thinks that all religions, all terrestrial religions, with the possible exception of Buddhism, would pretty much become defunct overnight the, the minute that aliens landed on Earth. Huh,
0: right. Um, and you write that exotheology is an idea that it has been explored extensively in SF literature. So tell us about some examples of this. Does it turn out well? For
2: example, it, it tends to turn out very badly for the most part. Um, we, we get a lot of narratives about uh, specifically Jesuits going into space to convert the aliens. Um, usually what happens is that you have a kind of alien utopia and it gets messed up beyond all repair by very well-meaning Jesuits going along to say hi and tell them, you know, have you got a moment for Jesus? Um, there's an especially excellent example, I think, is is Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow, um, which is a novel where there's a Jesuit mission to the planet Rakat. And they discover that there are two species there, one of which is is completely dominating and oppressing the other one. So they they obviously try to do the right thing and undo this oppression. And what they end up achieving is destroying the entire society because they didn't understand the interrelated nature of these two species. And this kind of narrative obviously draws on the, the real life history of the Catholic Church entering the Americas in the time of the New World in the 1500s, of course.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in that book, um uh the main character uh begins to lose his faith, or a lot of it is him struggling with his faith, as the challenges raised by the real situation that he gets himself into doesn't really line up very well with um his uh, the expectations he had based on his religion, is that right?
2: That's right. Well I mean Father Sandoz, Emilio Sandos, he he goes on this mission to to the planet Rakat. And he, he ends up, spoiler alert again, uh, he ends up being tortured. And uh, and he's looking back on his torture and wondering what kind of God would allow me to be tortured. What kind of God would allow me to go with the the best of intentions and then accidentally screw up an entire planet? You know, the incredible, you know, it's a, I think it, it's nuanced as well because it's not just all about him blaming God. It's also his own sense of guilt being projected onto God and his failure to make the correct analysis of of situations and understand that he was bringing a kind of imperialist assumption of how society worked to this other society that he couldn't possibly know because it was alien.
0: Yeah, that's right. And um, Mary Doria Russell herself is a sociologist. And um, I believe at this point, She's a religious person, but she went from being religious and then some period of agnosticism and then kind of back again. And that very particular uh, background, I guess, has brought her to this place where she presents a really, like you say, really nuanced presentation of, um, of what's happening for SandOS as well as for the, um, this very well thought through uh, planetary society there. And uh, yeah, it's, like you say, it's, she doesn't present one thing as definitely being right or one thing is definitely being wrong or a cynical view of Catholicism necessarily. She just raises really difficult questions.
2: I think one of the things I really like about that book, um, because I'm, you know, departing upon, I'm kind of agnostic on Catholicism myself, <laughs> despite having written the book on it, um, is I, I, it's such a big church and it's gone on for such a very long time. And it's got so many different iterations and different cultures and different contexts. Uh, and different forms of it—that it's impossible to really generalise about Catholicism. There's too much Catholicism going on to 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 say it's one single thing. And and her book really captures that. There's a range of Catholicisms. There's dis- there's dispute and difference and argument going on within Catholicism all the time. And that happens in her novel, which is almost kind of unique amongst these novels of, of science fiction that deal with Catholicism, is that she, she addresses the fact that it's not a monolith.
0: I wanted to ask you, too, about how uh, the post-colonial perspective might be coming through in some of the more recent works that feature exotheology. Have you noticed anything along those lines?
2: Yeah, there, I mean, one of the, the interesting kind of things that I found was where we, we get this narrative of the aliens, the aliens coming to us in the past, and encountering a kind of hegemonic Catholicism, so um, you know there are novels where uh, the aliens accidentally crash land in in kind of uh, inquisition era Portugal, and uh, and of course they get burned as heretics you know that some people are like no they're angels and other people they're Africans and they're no let's just burn them as demons you know um, and uh, and then there are other there, theres there's other novels there's a wonderful novel um, called oh um, Eiffelheim. Um, which uh, where the, the aliens land in kind of uh 14th century era uh Germany in Bavaria, and and they're getting on really well with these kind of Thomas uh local Christians. Um, but then the Black Death comes, and of course, they get blamed for it all. You know, oh, you, you evil aliens have brought this this plague upon us, you should all die. Uh, and you're obviously devils and demons, so that kind of you know, the, that there's there's a kind of a, 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 a you know, maybe what if we're the colonial uh the, are they what if we're the colony you know um that's the most recent iteration of, of these kind of novels what if what if we are the ones being colonized you know
0: Okay, so the fourth chapter is about Eucronius, which is the term for a story presenting an alternate history or an altered present due to some significant event in history being changed. So this is a popular way to create cognitive estrangement in SF, but you write that it's been around longer than that. So maybe define for the audience what this is all about and how it can function as a rhetorical literary device.
2: Well, I mean, Ukronia, um, it means without or outside of time to, to, to go to the roots of the term. Um, it's sometimes called speculative history, sometimes called counterfactual history, Um I like to call it what if history, you know, what if Hitler had never been born or this kind of thing. Um, And and according to Tristram Hunt, all history is what if history because we we surmise our narratives and and motives. We can't fully, truly know what happened in the past. Not even often if we actually took part in the events can we fully know what happened. Um, So partly drawing on kind of Thomas Carlyle's idea of the big man theory of history—you know, history—you know, congregates around the events of singular individuals, and also on the idea that history kind of pivots on key moments in time. You can you can see the obvious attraction for speculating on what might have happened if you know, like I say, Hitler had not been born, or or Christ had not died on the cross, or the Persians haven't fought uh, at Salamis, or Jericho's walls haven't fallen, and you know, and so this is oddly enough quite a discipline within history itself, as as well as literature. Um, It's used to explore hypotheses within that discipline, you know, were the economics more important than the politics kind of thing. And of course, in literature, especially science fiction, it's hugely popular. Um, And about a third of all Ukrainians relate to like, what if the war had gone differently? So what if the Nazis had won World War II? Uh, We see this in things like The Man in the High Castle and and Fatherland, Um, and a quarter if the politics had been different. And uh, and uh, you know, if Jesus Christ had never lived, for example, so it's a it's a very very rich area.
0: So, what have you found in terms of representations of Catholicism in Eucronius?
2: There, there, there's an entire subgenre. There's two big subgenres that apply here. One is um, what if Jesus Christ's life didn't go the way we think it did? So, um, uh, novels like Michael Moorcock's Behold the Man, where Uh, A character travels back in time to to meet Christ and discovers that Christ is kind of cognitively profoundly disabled and realizes, well, there's not going to be a Christian church because this guy here is not a a messiah. He's, you know, a profoundly disabled individual and he becomes Christ in order to ensure that there's a Christianity. Um, and the other one, of course, is uh, what if the Reformation had never happened? And this, I think, goes to the heart of this kind of Protestant enlightenment aspect of science fiction, which kind of fears a return of medieval Catholic hegemony, you know. And so book after book offers this idea, the Reformation never happened. Um, the most popular well-known are probably Pavan by Keith Roberts or The Alteration by Kingsley Amos, you know, but it, it doesn't literally entire subgenre. genre.
0: Fascinating. You mentioned that there's a significant change in the 1970s with the ascension or accession of Popes John Paul II and then Benedict XVI that uh, sort of sapped the vitality of this trend to, quote, unwrite the Reformation. So what changed and how do we see that reflected in SF of the period?
2: Well, I suppose, I mean, to tease this out, Catholicism probably doesn't seem especially progressive to a lot of people, you know, especially if they're not religious, but it did certainly have a moment in the kind of 1960s and 1970s, especially with the, the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II, as they call it, which revolutionized the whole range of things in the church and modernized it, re-established its relationship with science and that kind of thing. Um, and, and that kind of process did upset a lot of the more conservative wings within the Catholic Church. And they eventually got back into power with The conservative popes John Paul II and Benedict in the period from 1979 up until the the accession of the recent Pope Francis. So in that earlier period, um, in the kind of 60s, 70s period, science fiction finally kind of came to terms with Catholicism as not necessarily being the enemy. Catholicism seemed to be becoming more progressive and science fiction itself was kind of moving away from its core idea that science incrementally moves us towards an ever more utopian future because this is obviously the post-war period where the new wave of science fiction had identified things like the, the nuclear bomb as being very problematic technology and they were kind of looking towards inner space rather than outer space for inspiration which dovetails a lot with religious impetus. So. We have this period where you know science fiction and Catholicism are kind of getting on okay, and then by the time we kind of get to the eighties with John Paul II on the throne in Rome, Catholicism has become conservative again. Uh, We get the fiction that starts coming through, like the Hyperion Cantos or some of the Uchronias of that period, are are, are much more condemnatory of Catholicism as anything that became previously. Um, and I kind of characterize this entire trajectory as the rise and fall of the robot papacy because in the fiction of the 70s, like like uh, Silverberg's Good News from the Vatican, we see science fiction celebrating Catholicism itself celebrating having a robot pope as a kind of enlightened diversity and progressivism. But then later when we get to the Hyperion cantos, Dan Simmons is depicting Catholicism having a kind of unholy alliance with these oppressive artificial intelligences as being a kind of dark dystopian, totalizing conservatism. So that's the the rise and fall of the robot papacy.
0: Um Excellent. So you conclude by defending uh, the Catholicism of the real world as being somewhat unfairly maligned or misidentified as the adversary to progressivism and scientific rationalism. So can you expand on that idea for us here?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, the Catholicism we see in science fiction is not real Catholicism. And I sometimes think the Catholicism we hear about from a lot of people in public discourse is not necessarily the real Catholicism either. And like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fellow traveler. I'm just the, I'm just an observer of this. I use the term faux Catholicism because it's fake. Um, I was saying earlier on, the actual Catholic church is a huge entity spread across the entire globe across centuries of time. It's simply not possible to summarize it in the way that science fiction or indeed a lot of individuals often try to do. Um, And it's not antipathetic to science. If you look at the historical record, many leading scientific figures have been devout Catholics. Um, Things like genetic science would not exist without devout Catholics. Um, There's a sense maybe that, you know, the, of the Inquisition burning scientists, you know, and then Catholicism uh, having that antipathetic role, which you know, it, it did happen in some instances but it's not really significantly borne out by the evidence. Generally that, that antipathy isn't real. Catholicism as we see with Brother Guy is, is very interested in science. It's very interested in having a role to play somewhere in that debate and and, and that goes all the way back to kind of Thomas Aquinas and the Thomists in the, in, in the 14th century where you have Catholicism trying to accommodate and work with what they called natural philosophy in those days. Um, So this idea in which Catholicism is a kind of anti-science, anti-future, anti-progressive force is somewhat of a bogeyman. It's not always a bogeyman, but it's somewhat of a bogeyman. And and, and more importantly, it's a place filler. It's a shorthand for all of the regressive anti-knowledge forces that science fiction wishes to oppose, rather than summarise uh, rather than try and list them all it's easier to just summarize them by putting a priest on the, on the spaceship
0: oh i see interesting so we we chatted a little bit uh at more length about mary doria russell's um uh the sparrow books uh, as well as the hyperion cantos by dan simmons were there any other standout examples of catholics or priests in science fiction that you'd like to to share with us
2: there's a wonderful, wonderful novel called uh, A Case of Conscience by James Blish from the 50s. And it's it's just an exquisite piece of work, whether you look at it uh, in terms of science fiction or you look at it in terms of theology or you look at it in terms of philosophy. Um, and, and, and it's got the best twist ever in the final page. You can get all the way to the final page and still not know what's going to happen. And then when the twist comes, it could be any of two things. Uh, Two things in terms of philosophy, two things in terms of theology, two things in terms of the science fictionality of it. I don't want to go into any more detail than that, but and and it's got a wonderful protagonist. It's got this this kind of uh, Latino priest who reads *Finnegans Wake* by James Joyce and likes hanging out with aliens. And it's just such a wonderful book on any level. Uh, the, The Catholicism is is just another rich part of the tapestry to it i would recommend that book to everybody all
0: right i'm going to write that down that's a case for conscience by a- james a case Blitz. of conscience a yeah a case of conscience james blish all right um and i finally i wanted to bring up the german tv series on netflix right now called dark um season 1 came out like whew, 2 or 3 years ago season 2 just came out more recently and there's i didn't realize uh, i didn't expect it but there's going to be a third season so they still have
2: all of these unanswered questions.
0: Have you seen this?
2: I have not seen it. Um I'm looking forward to it. I'm very much looking forward to doing so
0: okay, cause it is uh I am loving it so much. It's one of these extremely complex complicated, difficult to follow narratives because the first season came out so long ago. I talked my husband into rewatching the entire first season with me before we watched season two, (laughs) just so that we could like stay on top of who is what and what's happening. Uh, I love those kinds of complicated narratives, but the bad guy um, is a priest. And so that's what, um, yeah. So it made me think of your book here because he is super sinister and, um, if for no other reason than he just, uh, I don't know, he just wears the, the outfit and he has the collar on and they don't really bring religion into it. Um, and he's a fake.
2: don't need to if he has the signifiers of the clothing necessarily. That's
0: right. Because I think he uses that clothing as a way to, um, gain people's trust, Get into people's homes and to disarm people, basically. Um, but I think he's just using it as a tool. Um, and most of most of the scenes with him, I think, are in the 1950s. Although it's a time travel show, so he's in all oh. of, all of the timelines. But um, just so sinister and terrifying. Um, so, anyways, okay, definitely watch that. It's very very good.
2: Well, oh, we we see. We see these kind of tropes in in television and cinematic science fiction quite often. I, mean, I, I, I haven't seen Dark and I will I will watch it. But I mean, I think, for example, of like the um, the lead Cylon in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, who was the he was the priest on on the ship, on the Galactica. But he was actually a fifth columnist and he was actually working against them for, for the Cylons. And, and I mean, obviously, Germany has its own kind of intriguing relationship with Catholicism going all the way back to Luther. So, you know, I I, I would love to know what German people have to say about that series, too.
0: Yeah, that was my next question for you, is if um, if you know much about anti-Catholicism in SF genres of other languages, or if that's something you think you might look into further?
2: Well, I'm a little bit of a monoclot, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it definitely exists in early, in early science fiction in France, um, because... Uh, you know, the kind of anti-clericalism coming out of the, you know, leading into and coming out of the French Revolution, um, you know, and, and and that kind of French, you know, philosophe enlightenment tradition uh, feeds into a lot of utopian fiction from France, a lot of voyage extraordinaire fiction in France um, that all is quite kind of condemnatory of Catholicism. Um, Beyond that, I can't really speak. I know there's a lot of uh, Catholicism existing, obviously, in Hispanophone science fiction for obvious reasons. Um, How that manifests, I'm not entirely sure. I look forward to somebody coming along and reading it and telling me. I mean, I'm real open to hearing about it.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, well, Jim, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. I had so much fun with your book. Um, Before we go, tell us what you're currently working on.
2: I'm on science fiction and Buddhism next. <laughs> As I say, you know, I, I sort of, I sort of think we, we need to kind of deal with these these belief systems individually. So I thought I'd have a look at Buddhism, and I thought it'd be a lot shorter a, a, a work. But actually, it's if anything, it's turned out to be an even more fascinating project. Um, it begins with the Orientalism of the Theosophists in the 19th century, because Buddhism arrived late in Europe, um, and then it moves through the pulp fictions of texts like Fu Manchu and, and Shangri La to the costumed superheroes during the war and Batman's origins and Arthur C. Clark's secret Buddhism and the kind of cosmogony and Frank Herbert's Dune and the post-humanism of kind of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and and, and contemporary climate fiction. It, it's, it's, it, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in the middle of all of that.
0: Wow. Okay, great. Well, hopefully we, uh, you'll come back and talk to us about that one too.
2: I'd love to.
0: to. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book. Glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it. And uh, I'll wish you a good rest of your weekend.
2: Thank you very much, Carrie.
0: All right. Goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Jim Clark about his new book, Science Fiction and Catholicism, The Rise and Fall of the Robot Papacy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Do you have another example of Catholics in science fiction? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com.